I don't normally use PowerPoints when I preach um, just because of the series. I'm going to use it today. So relax, I won't be using it normally. But, but, I, but I will do it with you today. Um, if we went around the room, started in the front, worked to the back, came forward, there's a whole host of questions that believers have, some of which they're kind of afraid to ask. Um, perhaps some of your questions would be some of these, and we could add to them. I'm just going to list a couple for you. Why do people oppose Jesus when he offers us the good news of the gospel? Did you ever think about that? And that, that, that's just one where I think, like, why wouldn't people want this? And the Bible just deals with that. Why is it so hard to live the here and now in light of the there and the then? Is it only me who struggles with that one? Why hasn't Jesus come back? I mean, it's been 2,000 years, for goodness sakes. Why is my life filled with one trial after another? Can I really believe the Bible and rely on the story of Jesus Christ for my life? Now that, that's a tricky one because you, know, you don't like to admit that to anybody, especially if you're a Christian. But from time to time, we have questions like this and many others. And one of the things I think we forget sometimes, maybe you don't, but is that when the scriptures were written, I think if you would have asked me when I was about eight years old, hey, Doug, like how did God write the Bible? I think I would have told you this. I don't know where I picked it up. I just think I would have told you that God said, okay, Paul, sit down, man. Get out a pen. We're writing 13 books. I mean, I think, I think that's what I probably would have told you, and I don't know where I picked that up. But that's not at all how the New Testament was written, is it? Every one of the books was written because people needed to know the gospel and theology and truth about God in a particular situation that they were facing. Did you ever wonder why we have four gospels? The beauty of, of it, you know, it's like watching a, a football game where you get all these different angle shots, you know. The beauty of four Gospels is we get all these different perspectives on Jesus. Now, they're all true, but they're all retellings from different angles, aren't they? But the other reason we have four Gospels is because different writers, different apostles were writing to different situations that people were struggling with either in reference to Jesus Christ or life in general. Luke and John specifically will tell us why they write. Matthew and Mark don't tell us explicitly. You have to kind of read between the lines. But they're all written to different groups at different times for different reasons. Isn't that great? And so whatever questions you bring... You're not the first one to bring those questions. I mean, way back in the first century, men and women, boys and girls, struggled with certain kinds of questions. What we want to do over the next several months is we want to look at the story that's going to be given to us by Luke. I mean, as you're probably aware, 
and we're calling this following Jesus in our world, a look at Luke's two volume. If I keep turning around, don't worry. Following Jesus at Luke.edu might be the easier way to say it. So what we want to do over these next couple months is we're going to run through Luke and Acts. Here's the other thing. Maybe, and I mean, I'm just, I'm sharing my own story with you. And I know this is a little bit teachy today, so stay with me, okay? Um, I kind of figured that when the Bible was written, you know, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then later, somebody came along and wrote Acts to tell us about the early church. Now, now um, you know, we read our Bible like that, and that's not a bad thing. But in reality, folks, Luke wrote two books together on purpose. He doesn't just want you to read his gospel. He wants you to read the book of Acts too. Because he's saying, I've got to tell you a story. A story like no other, and it's about Jesus. So let me, uh, let me throw something up here for you. Um, here's one of the things, and I was going to quiz you on this, but I'll just throw it up here. If I would have asked you which writer in the New Testament has written more than any of the other New Testament writers, my guess is, if you're a typical audience, you would have said Paul. But it's not true. Paul writes about 25, over 25% of our New Testament. John writes about almost 18%. But Luke writes 27% of our New Testament comes from Luke. And all the other writers, 29%. So, so what's fascinating is Luke tells us more than even Paul, at least word for word. So what we want to do is, look, Luke, if you're writing that much, what do you want us to know about Jesus? Now, I hope you can read this in the back. Can you, can you, if you, uh, I don't know where to stand exactly, but I'll just kind of... What I have here is Luke 1, 1 to 4 and Acts 1, 1 and 2. So if you, you, know, if you can't read it, just pull out your Bible. But I want to just read it through for you because I want you to show, just to realize the way we have our New Testaments set up sometimes is we don't typically read Luke-Acts together, but we should. Listen to what he says, Luke 1, 1 to 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now look how Acts begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Can you see how Luke writes in such a way that he doesn't want you to stop with the one book, does he? Does that make sense? And here's something else. Notice how Acts 1 begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does that mean? If, if, if Luke is about all that Jesus began to do and teach... 
What's Acts about? What he continues to do and teach. You see, Luke says, I want to tell you about the earthly ministry of Christ and the exalted ministry of Christ. I want you to see what he did and what he taught when he came to earth and what he continues to do and teach to his apostles in an exalted position. You see, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? So Luke says, we are going to follow Jesus in our world, whether it's in his earthly ministry or exalted ministry. Let's just pull back and let's just read what he does. So if that's what Luke wants to do, that's what we'd like to do for the next couple months. Enter into that story and watch the flow to see what he says. Um, so if you're reading Luke Acts, you, you probably have realized this. When you get to chapter 24, you almost kind of feel like there's a little bit of an overlap, you know, a little bit of a deja vu when you come to Acts 1.1. And it's on purpose because he re- Luke, Luke, in the gospel, he goes right through the ascension. And then what he does in Acts 1 is he kind of backtracks a little bit and works through again so you don't miss the point. It does a little bit of overlapping. So here's the point. Luke says... Theophilus. And we don't know who Theophilus is exactly. My, my, my guess is he's probably a Gentile, a man of some wealth, probably a newer believer, had some contact with Judaism. But he's got a whole host of questions. He wants to know that if he's going to invest his life in something, he's got to know it's true. And he's got to know what it's all about. So Luke says, let me do that for you. Now, I'm going to put something up here. Don't worry about remembering it all. It's, it's, it's a little bit cumbersome, so I'll read through it quickly. But if you get the gist of it, you'll be fine. So when he writes, if I had to like summarize Luke and summarize Acts for you, and I probably put too much details in there, but it's the way I am sometimes. So This is what he says in the gospel. In fulfillment of God's salvific kingdom plan from the Old Testament. See, he wants Theophilus to know something. Everything that he's going to tell him about Jesus has a prophetic background to it. So he says, Theophilus, I want you to know that Jesus is not just like popping on the scene all of a sudden. No, no. It's all connected to the purposes of God from way, way back. So in fulfillment of God's salvific kingdom program from the Old Testament, the spirit-empowered words and works of Jesus, one of the things you're going to find as you work through Luke's gospel, is that Jesus depended on the spirit. And one of the reasons he's going to tell us that is, We need to depend on the Spirit too, okay? But anyway, the Spirit-empowered words and works of Jesus during his earthly ministry, which, as we know, culminate in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, reveal that Jesus is Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Here's what uh, Luke does. Luke is a great story writer. What good story? What, what, What good storyteller pulls up front and tells you right at the beginning? Um, I'm gonna tell you everything right up front, then I'm going to tell you the story. Is that, how, is that how it works? Like if I tell you a joke, 
When do I give you the moral? At the beginning or at the end? At the end. And one of the things that Luke is doing as he writes is he's saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start with the uh, birth of Christ, and I'm just going to start building and building and building and building and building and building. And by the time you get to the end of my story, you're going to go like, holy mackerel. Look at Jesus. Like, he's everything. Luke says, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so, so come with me, hold on, and we're going to work through that story so when it gets when you get done, you go like, Jesus is incredible. Yeah. That's that's exactly what he wants to do. In the second book, in fulfillment of God's salvific kingdom plan from the Old Testament, the ongoing words and works of the exalted Lord Jesus are expressed through his spirit empowered apostles and witnesses, with the result that his spirit empowered multi-ethnic church advances to the ends of the earth. Um, for just a moment, turn over to Acts 28, would you? Acts 28. Do you remember where Acts ends? Where's Paul in Acts 28? He's in Rome, and he's in prison. And Luke, Luke ends his book. He doesn't even tell us what happened to Paul, does he? Ultimately, I mean, I read this and I go to myself like, okay, so like, did he get out of prison or not? I mean, I have all these questions. And you know what Luke is telling us? Those things aren't what's most important to me. Notice where he ends his book. He starts out by saying, Theophilus, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, his earthly ministry, everything he did, his exalted ministry. I'm going to sweep through. He gets to the very end and he says this. Last verse of Acts 28. Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. He's in prison under house arrest. And teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. You know what he says? You can't stop God's work. You can take a man who is thinking, hey, I got to go to Rome at some point. Paul knew that. And God takes him in this circuitous route that Paul wasn't even thinking about. Puts him in Rome, under prison, and he says, you know what? I am in that setting, and I am able to proclaim the truth of the gospel, and it goes forth, and it's not going to be hindered. And Luke says, I think that's a good place to end. And he puts a dot, and it's finished. Why does he do that? He wants Theophilus, he wants us to read that story and say, you know what? You're not going to stop the work of God through Jesus Christ. It, it is just, it's gone out. It's not going to stop, man. Don't you want to be part of that story? And that's the story we want to unpack in our time together over the next couple months. We, we won't look at Every single passage in Luke Acts or else it would be about a two to three year series. And we want to try to smush it down a little bit, not have it go more than a year and, you know, six months here, six months, that kind of thing. So we're smushing. Um, so we won't deal with every passage, but we want to deal with, the, is smushing a, yeah, it's, it's a good word, right? It's a good word. Here's the other thing I was thinking. I, I, I um, yesterday, 
I took my family to see, uh, did anybody see Saving Mr. Banks? Nobody saw that movie? It was, it's actually, it was, okay, it was uh, tied into Walt Disney and getting the Mary Poppins thing and all. It was, um, when I first heard about it, I thought that sounds kind of strange, but I went to see it. It was a very, very well done movie. Anyway, in there, the guy that was Tom Hanks, who was acting as, as Walt Disney, was talking to this woman and trying to convince her some things. And he said, um, he said, we are storytellers, he said. We instill hope again and again and again. That's what storytellers do. And my wife and I walked out of the movie, and it was very well done. We were touched and moved and all that kind of good stuff. Mary Poppins might make me feel good for a day. You know? Make me smile, maybe a week. But I don't know that I can bank my life on Mary Poppins. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, so he says, you know, we instill hope again and again and again. Yeah, but it's all just for now. Make me feel good today. I would argue when Luke writes, Luke says, I'm a storyteller of what is true. And what I'm telling you will instill hope again and again and again and again right into eternity. So Disney, if I could just paraphrase him, if you would have just applied it correctly, was, yeah, with Luke, not with Mary Poppins. Isn't that true? Here's one of the things I think we miss sometimes. If you go back to Luke 1, oh, yeah, let me just mention this one too. Um, one of the other things that I love about reading Luke Acts together is you kind of get this sense of, of this movement. And one of the other things that you notice is how important Jerusalem is in both books. But in Luke, Jerusalem is most important at the end of the story. And in Acts, Jerusalem is most important at the beginning of the story. You know why? Because once you hit Luke chapter 9, it's really, really interesting the way Luke writes. Once you hit Luke chapter 9, there's a phrase that he mentions again and again. I think about eight times in ten chapters. And it's this, this, it's this statement, and Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he can be up in Galilee somewhere, and Jesus set his face to go to Galilee. He can be northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus set his face to go to Galilee. He can be down in Samaria, and Jesus set his face to go to Galilee. I mean, it doesn't matter where he... Uh, Galilee, sorry, sorry, did I say Galilee? Jerusalem, my bad. But here's the point. Once you hit chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, Luke is saying, Jesus is thinking Jerusalem everywhere you find him. Why? Because it is in Jerusalem that Jesus will die, be buried, and resurrect, and nearby ascended. And Luke is saying, you cannot think about the gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, without thinking about Jesus must get to Jerusalem because it is there that you will be redeemed. But then when he hits, once he hits the book of Acts, 
The last thing he wants you to think about is that Christianity is a Jewish religion. Isn't that true? And so now the book of Acts move out of Jerusalem to every group imaginable. Samaritans, they're in. Gentiles, yeah. Bummy, pagan Gentiles, yep, they're in too. And that's why he says, now you're in Jerusalem. God has done his work in Jerusalem. Christ has redeemed us because of the cross, death, burial, and resurrection. Now you go out and Paul ends up in Rome itself and the word is unhindered. Do, do, do you see how he ties all this together? That, that's why for us, I, I was excited. I talked to Tim, I don't know, a couple weeks back or months, whenever we were talking about this stuff. I told him, I really would like to do a series on Luke-Acts. Because I think for most of us, we don't put the two books together. And Luke wrote them together. So we should give Luke the benefit of the doubt. Um, let me mention one other thing real quickly here. I think it. Okay, good. Yeah, just going back to this passage. Um, and one of the reasons I guess I wanted to say this is there, there is, um, like in my studies, when I was doing university studies, there was this mindset sometimes with Christianity that Christianity is just kind of this mindless religion that is all about experience and not really facts, if it makes you feel good. Uh, at least that's the way it's portrayed, you know? Oh, you guys just take this leap of faith into whatever. You create this story of Jesus. One of the things I think that's really, really important is to realize that was never the way it was in the first century. Now, is there the experiential emotional element? Of course. But it is always based on evidence. And so Luke says, I'm going to write to you. Jesus dies in 30 AD. Most of the Gospels are written in the 60s. It's 30 years, isn't it? And Luke says when he writes 30 years later, he says, you know, um, there have been a variety of people that have been telling stories about Jesus. Yeah, but how do you know if they're just not just, you know, winging out? Well, Uncle so-and-so said, you, you know why? Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It's really, really important, folks. There were a group of witnesses and apostles to validate the stories that were being passed on of Jesus Christ. And these men who lived over this period of time could say, no, that one didn't happen. That one did. Yes, that's what Jesus said. No, he never said that one. You need that, don't you? Now, the Spirit of God is over this entire process. But from a human perspective, Luke is saying there are apostles and witnesses that can validate everything. And Luke says others have written stories, good stories. And they're only good because there's eyewitnesses and apostles that say yes on that and yes on that and no on that. And so Luke says, when I wrote, Luke, who was a companion of Paul, Luke says, when I wrote, I went back to the beginning and I did all kinds of research. And I talked to all those people again. So Theophilus, when I write to you, you're going to see a variety of things. You're going to see that what I say is exactly what the apostles and eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ would validate. 
you're going to see that exactly what I say is all in fulfillment of what has come from the Old Testament. And, and, and unlike some of the other gospel writers, I'm not going to stop at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm going to tell the story that runs all the way up to the time that I'm actually writing right now. So you get to hear this story that starts with Christ's birth and runs all the way up right into the 60s A.D. And Theophilus, I don't do this so that it'll just fill your head with information. Instead, I want you to be overwhelmed with Jesus. So pull back Theophilus and follow Jesus through his earthly ministry. Follow Jesus in his exalted ministry. And with confidence and passion, live as a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why he writes his book. Do we need that? I don't know about you, but I sure do. Let me throw something else up here. All right. Yeah, without going into crazy detail, here is just a real simple outline on Luke's gospel. Stay with me. I know it's a little teachy-teachy, but stay with me. All right. And, and what we're going to do, and by the way, for next week, all we're doing is 1, 1 to 4 today. We didn't get very far. But from here on out, we're going to do about a chapter a, a week is, is the plan. Um, next week, if you could just read through Luke 1, the whole ch- it's a long chapter. Read through Luke 1, write down questions you have, and just think about Luke 1. I, I would really, really appreciate it because it's a lot for us to try to go through next week. But anyway, he has his prologue. And then he has this beginning section, and here's what's really interesting. He has John the Baptist, and he talks about John the Baptist and Jesus, real important. What he does is this. He wants, and he kind of goes back and forth. So he gives you a prophecy about John the Baptist, and then he gives you where, where the angel appears, and then he, and the angel appears and gives a prophecy to Mary about the birth of Jesus. Then Mary and Elizabeth come together, and then he talks to you about the birth of John the Baptist, and then the birth and growth of Jesus as a child. I mean, that's pretty much chapter 1 and 2. But here's what I think is important. The way I just explained it was kind of like dead wrong. It's not like he goes, John, Jesus, together, John, Jesus. You know what he does? He says, John, Jesus. John, Jesus. So yeah, John's really important. But he pales in comparison to Jesus. Every man does. Then he moves into the preparation for his ministry. He's going to talk about his temptation. We'll talk about that, his baptism. Galilean ministry. Jesus comes on the scene. And he begins, and here's where we get introduced to his words and his works. He speaks, gives parables, does miracles. He interacts with people. All that stuff goes on. And as that section begins to grow and increase, one of the things we find is that the most unusual people become followers of Christ. Like, I'm expecting all the religious leaders to become followers, aren't you? For sure, the Jews are, right? And you're reading that section, you're thinking, like, the religious leaders are the biggest problem. And they're opposing him and stiff-arming Jesus. And you've got people in the peripheral that nobody cares about. The sick and the lame and the prostitutes and the sinners and all the scum of the culture, so people would say. 
many of them are flocking to Jesus. People are like, look at this, is really messing up my world. It was messing up their world. Theophilus couldn't figure that out. So the ones you think would come in don't, the ones you don't do, and okay, whatever. And so you're finding all, all this is beginning to happen. And like I told you, when you get to this middle section, chapter 9 to 19, Jesus, we have more parables in this section than you can possibly imagine. Jesus is teaching like crazy. But everywhere he finds himself, he knows his destiny. It's Jerusalem. Then in the end of the chapter, he is in Jerusalem, and we will just walk through again his confrontation, his passion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And that walks us through Luke's gospel. In, in Acts, you find also this kind of movement out. You have an introduction, the early days of, of, of the church, and so they're in Jerusalem, and you know what the problem is? God doesn't want them to stay in Jerusalem, does he? And so the very thing that God does not approve, God does not approve of persecution of his church. That's, that's, that's a no-no. But God allows it. And in allowing it, he gets his people to begin to move out. And they start moving, working with Samaritans. And you know, some Jews that are saying, like, what is the deal on Samaritans? And then he introduces them to some Gentiles, but at least Gentiles that are kind of like have relationships with Jews. That's not, that's not good, but it's not too bad. And then just all out pagan Gentiles. And then he takes Paul, and Paul primarily focuses on that group through the end of the book and ends up in the pagan capital of Rome itself at the end. God says, yeah, that's my work. Because although the message of the gospel is exclusive, salvation is only through Jesus Christ and nothing else. The scope and the offer is inclusive, isn't it? And so you get done reading Luke, you say, well, this guy's ethnic group is different than mine. It matters nothing. Well, their socioeconomic status is different than mine. It means nothing. Their background's different than mine. It means nothing. It, if they're breathing, God loves them. And God wants to reach them. And so when you get done reading Luke Acts, you pull back and you say, what a marvelous Savior that has loved us this much. I think that's all I've got for, for these things today. Okay, yeah, we'll just, we'll leave that up. Oh, you know what? Let me go back one more. Here we go. Ah, leave it there. Okay, leave it, we'll, leave, we'll leave it right there. So, so all I wanted to do this morning was to kind of give you the big picture and to invite you to enter in on a journey with us for the next several months. You may be here today and you say, you know, Doug, this stuff's kind of new to me. I'm not even a believer. We are tickled that you're with us then. Because you can follow Jesus along this journey with us. And let him be the one that amazes you, not us. So read with us and see what Jesus will do in your life. And if you're a Christian and you hear the word, the only response that you can come away with is I'm a forgiven follower of his. 
and I just want him to have it all. I, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what else you can do but that. To help to remind us of this, we're going to go into the communion service. The bread and the juice. Um, and I just want to read to you a very, very familiar passage. And, and again, remember, where is Luke's gospel ultimately going? What city? What, 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 what city? Jerusalem. Jesus set his mind to go to Jerusalem because he loved you. And he wanted to go there so that he could die for the sins of the world. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read familiar, familiar words before we actually take the elements. Because Luke writes about Jesus and communion is all about Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All those promises from the Old Testament about a new covenant. About you being transformed from the inside out. This cup, when you take it, it represents what I did for you on the cross of Calvary. It allows you to live as a different kind of people because of what I've done for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is not only a time to remember, it's always a time to proclaim. It's a time for you and I to reflect again, Lord, am I living in light of who you are and in light of what you want for my life. When I think of what you've done for me, we remember. But it's also supposed to be a time in which we preach and proclaim there's nothing more important than Jesus. So when I take this cup and I eat this bread, I want people to know I love them and I want them to know him too. We're going to go to prayer and reflect. And then, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're a forgiven follower of His, we would invite you to the front or to the back to take the, both the bread and the cup. And then Tim will come and lead us.